And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. One of the great benefits of my side gig as a senior commentator for CNN is that I've gotten to meet so many interesting people from various points of view on the political spectrum. And one of the most compelling has been S.E. Cup, a vibrant, passionate, young, conservative commentator who I find endlessly interesting, even as I don't agree with her on many things. I sat down with Essie during the Republican Convention Week in Cleveland to talk about her life, her career, and the state of conservatism in the era of Trump. Essie Cup, my friend, we we didn't know each other uh, until recently when we start started doing CNN stuff together. But I'm really interested in how one makes the journey from young ballet dancer <laughs> to conservative pundit. It's a fairly traditional route. <laughs> yes, I know. Well, you have to be agile if you're going to be in the public <laughs> arena, I know, but it is uh it is unusual. You you grew up in Massachusetts, is that right? I did. I I moved around a lot, but Andover, Massachusetts is where I lived. The most. What'd I your folks there. do? Um, my mom was a teacher, and my dad worked for the same company for forty years, and they kept moving him around. What do and, you do? What kind of company? Well, his story is amazing, and it's has a lot to do with who I am. He um, grew up really poor in Kentucky, and uh, didn't go to college. Left high school and ended up working in the warehouse of a company that made office supplies and paper goods uh, as a stock boy. And from there, he moved to the sales department and the management department. And eventually, he ended up becoming the vice president of a company called Office Max. Uh, I've heard of that. Have you? Yeah. Yes. Um, We've got malls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, need, you need paper goods. <laughs> And so he worked for that company all through my childhood, and they just kept moving him around from division to division as he rose through the ranks. So I um, lived in California, Arizona, Massachusetts, Michigan, Maryland, back to Massachusetts um, as as he moved around. That's tough for a kid. It was really tough. But, it, you know, it made me adaptable. It uh-huh. really did. And I, I took every move as an opportunity for an adventure and something new. Yeah. And sometimes I was this, this pleasantly ex- this surprised. This explains how one could be at Fox, MSNBC, and <laughs> CNN. CNN. Yes, you're used you to do. moving around. You, you do. I, it made me very agile and not so dependent on one place and one group of friends and one school, you know. Everything, I was always new. And I was always um, adapting to the new place. The one constant was ballet. Everywhere I went, Ballet was the important thing to find, the best From ballet From the time school. you were very small? Seven, yeah. I started when I was seven. Cause you, did your parents encourage you, or is that something you just wanted to do? No. When I was seven in first grade, all my friends were doing stuff after school, and I didn't have anyone to play with. And so I found something to do after school. It happened to be ballet. And I just got totally sucked in. And eventually... You know, I'm 16, dancing at Boston Ballet professionally, you know, leaving school every day at noon um, to do this with That's my life. Intense. It was so intense. Yeah. It was seven days a week, 365 days a year. 
What was that movie, The Black Swan? Is that yeah, one? it was a lot like that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> it really That's was. That's scary. It's an intense, at, that, at the level that, you know, that I was at, it was, it was intense for a girl that age to endure that kind of scrutiny body issues and you know yeah you wrote you wrote i thought an incredibly compelling piece about this um around uh, the issue of the big loser or whatever that show is the biggest loser the biggest loser um now which has now become a common phrase now that donald trump's on tv a lot because he (laughs) he he, he, he pins that on people all the time but um uh but you talked about and this was actually, actually, this was part of that black swan thing, mm-hmm. but just the incessant kind of focus on weight and mm-hmm. uh, when you're in ballet and it, like it foments eating disorders. For sure. I, I, I had that. <laughs> and, um, you know, eating disorders don't go away. You have them for life, even when you learn to manage them, as I have. Um, but it's been, it's been actually liberating having a career on television where people look at the way the way you look because I've already been through that and I've divorced that and so I don't have the thing of worrying about how people see me on television as a lot of people on television do because I've been through it and I've I've left it so I really I wish I had been a ballet dancer because I'm primping all the time. I'm really worried about You this. are a diva. People don't know you are so high maintenance. No, that's not true. So, um, but that, the anxiety that's associated with that has to be draining. It was a lot. I mean, there was therapy. There was, I got through it unscathed-ish. <laughs> Um, and it took a lot to get to like a normal place, but I, I did. And why'd you quit? Um, it, it came to a, it came to a feverish point where I, I don't think I was going to survive. Um, you know, to be, to be candid, I was in severely depressed and suicidal at, at a point. And it just became clear that I needed to make a, huge life change this is all at 17 David like crazy stuff but I I made a really quick life change hadn't applied to colleges really had prepared to do this for my life and kind of at the last minute applied to schools and uh, got into where I eventually went and really found myself yeah I went to Cornell um really found myself in college and discovered I was a whole human being outside of dance um, and worked for the paper, which is where I found my writing voice and discovered a thing I was meant had to do. Had you written in high school? Had you, had you, had you, always, had you kept a diary? With, yeah, many, many poorly written uh, maudlin journals. Um, but as my, adolescents are wont to yeah, do. Yeah, as adolescent girls are definitely want to do. My, my mom was an English teacher. I mm-hmm. um, you know, grew up writing and I was good at writing um in in high school it was natural for me but I always thought the thing you were meant to do for a job shouldn't be this easy and it wasn't until I got to college and started writing for the paper and realized you can do the thing that's easy if it's still challenging and I found it was challenging and fun and exciting 
So I knew the second I started doing it, that was what I was So were you as obsessive about writing as you were about ballet? I was obsessive. I was. I mean, strunk and white on my desk and, you know, it, 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 it became a passion. And being obsessive about writing means being obsessive about reading. And so I became, you know, an obsessive reader. Uh, of of good journalism, long form and short form, and yeah. of of criticism because that's what I was doing in, in college. I was doing arts criticism, movies, music, art, um, and yeah, it became my life. Became I, I go in hundred percent to everything I do. So yes, it became. I, I, I get that the new feeling, thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so did um, from a philosophical standpoint. I mean, you you're one of the young conservative voices in the country, uh, well-read, well-listened to. Um, when did you come to that identity? Um, it was funny. I didn't grow up in a particularly political household. I have two political memories growing up. One is watching the Gulf War, first Gulf War, with my family on the living room floor. Maybe I'm 10. The second is um, asking my mom what a blowjob was after Bill Clinton, the Bill Clinton affair. I, I learned about that term from that moment. Honestly. Um, I, that's, I, that's... I, 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 how, is, how did your mom react when you... <laughs> When you ask that question, that's got to be a bad moment. I think she punted. but <laughs> <laughs> um, Other than that, we really didn't talk about politics. So I got to college, surrounded by... Were your by parents, did they have a philosophical bent? Were they Republicans? I didn't were, know. No kidding. I didn't know. And I got to college. Everyone's liberal. Students, professors, administrators. It's still Clinton... Um, and I discover in college that I'm conservative because I attend a debate on affirmative action and I think, I, wow, I disagree with everyone here. Um, I did some research. I looked into these political identities and I found myself identifying more with conservatism. Call my parents, make a very uncomfortable phone call. Say, Mom, Dad, <laughs> you, I'm conservative. You came out, huh? They said, so are we. It was like we had first met. <laughs> and we found each other politically. Uh -huh. I didn't know they were Republicans. I didn't know I was conservative. And then I, like everything else, dove in. I mean, you know, Hayek and Rand and Irving Crystal, And I just dove in and ate it up and... 2000, I graduate. Let, let me just ask you one thing yeah. before you go on. I, I, I want to uh, go forward in the narrative here. But you mentioned earlier that your dad's life experience was influential. Does it feed into that, um, that narrative? I mean, he, he, it seems like he had the classic American story. He did. Know? Yeah, but I didn't know his politics. And I'm not sure he knew his politics now, I'm just saying as a values matter, as a, a matter of informing, informing your worldview there's on the, politics. There's this, the scholarship of politics that informed my world. 
but also looking back, I grew up in a conservative house. I just didn't know it. Um, you know, hard work, self-reliance, self-sufficiency. These were things that were ingrained in me and not to give my mom short shrift. Um, my mom divorced my biological father when I was two, met my dad when I was four and was a single mom for some time and worked and really did it all. Um, she was amazing as well. So yeah, there's, there are a, a lot of my values are not just informed by Hayek, <laughs> but, but also my, my family for sure. Uh, but I, I get to, um, I, I leave college in 2000, move to New York city to write Bush is elected. Then nine 11 happens in my backyard. And I'm walking home. Who are you from writing work. for? I, go ahead, finish the story. Cause yeah, I always like cut people off right in the middle of the dramatic. <laughs> lineup, and I don't want to finish the story. And then, um, I want to ask you about who you were writing for. I was writing copy for a PR firm, which I did for about a year. And then I got a job at the New York Times for eight years. Um, I leave my office. I'm walking home with the masses trying to get somewhere. Scared? Um, scared, yeah. Scared for people I knew that worked in those buildings. I wasn't scared for myself. Sad. I watched people run up to cab drivers in the street who were parked and going nowhere. Yell at them. Say, you did this. Because they thought they were Muslim cab drivers. And I just, I remember pulling a person off of a cab and begging him to stop yelling this. It was just a scary, sad time. And it moved me more into politics. And the first thing it moved me to do was enlist. Really? And my parents, I'm an only child, my parents said, no, please don't do this. And I deferred um, to them. Then I tried um, to join NYPD and they said, please don't do this. Then I said, well, what about the foreign, foreign service? And they said, okay, you can, you can try to do that. And I took the test. I studied for like six months. I took the test. I failed the test. <laughs> so I was stuck uh, becoming a citizen activist. And the only thing I knew how to do was write. So I became an activist as a writer. And I said, well, I'm going to write a book. <laughs> out of nowhere about being a conservative young person in Manhattan. And, uh, the book did well. You co you wrote it with some, I did. I wrote it with my friend from college. with the other conservative in Manhattan. the only other conservative young, in Manhattan. Yes. My friend from college, Brett, and the book did well. And we started in promoting the book. I started doing some TV. I wanted to get writing jobs out of it, which I did eventually but you know you start doing tv and i started making the rounds and we should say the book was called why you're wrong about the right yes it was and then a second book followed um losing our religion and eventually 
this became a career. I'm you you super lucky. you you have a degree in religion, right? Religious studies. Yeah. Um, From and, NYU, I got a master's. Yeah. And yet, you describe yourself as a, as an atheist. Mm -hmm. So, talk a little about that. W were your family was your family a, a religious family? Were they were they practitioners? No. Um, my mom's Catholic. I'm Italian. My mom is Catholic, and we went to church as a as a kid sporadically, mostly at my behest. I was fascinated with the ceremony of the Catholic Mass, the pomp and circumstance. I just love a ritual. And so I, I would ask We're to in go. Cleveland. You must be enjoying yourself at the Republican convention. <laughs> yes, this is, I mean, this is what drew me to politics too. And that's why I'm a baseball fan. I just love the ritual um, of, of communing with people. Who you root for? The Mets. Uh-huh. I Suffer. used to 40 years ago when I lived there. The Mets? Yes. Now I'm a Cubs fan, so... Cubs are great. We're, 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 we're a little bit at odds right now, but anyway, so you... 1908, you, right? Yeah. 1908, yeah. I Don't know. rub it in. I know. But we're trying to fix that. Last championship, I 1908, yeah. I hear you. You got close last year. We did, yes. Sorry for that. Yes. <laughs> we, we stood yes, in your way. the Mets... Uh, I know. Yeah. Um, <gasps> so they... So you went to church intermittently. And then through moves, we didn't. My dad wasn't religious at all. My dad um, got saved, as they say, became born again. While I was in college, I was out of the house. So he was, he's evangelical now. My mom's still not. Both parents believe in God, but they're not um, institutional religious uh, people. Um, I was atheist in high school but at that point i was like mad at god i've evolved to a different place mad at god because of all the torments you were going through that stuff um i think the fact that um my mom's church said you know because she was divorced she was she wasn't catholic mm -hmm. anymore just all of this stuff didn't make sense to me and i just thought it didn't make sense my brain didn't wrap around god and I was, I was mad at religion. I went to Catholic school. I was mad. <laughs> I've evolved out of that. I'm not mad at God. Um, scientifically, I just don't believe. But I really um, am enamored of and sort of envious of religious America. Mm -hmm. I feel like it must be really nice to have a crutch, not critically saying that, but a crutch in hard times. Well, yeah. You see families go through terrible right. grief, and right. the only thing that gets them through, I, I've seen it with um, Joe Biden and the way he's totally. dealt with the awful, awful things that he's had, right. he and his family have had to deal with. So, um, yeah. I met a survivor of the Rwandan genocide. Emmanuel Igibadiza is her name. She wrote a book. And she was locked in captivity in a bathroom for 90 days. There was a small window and she watched outside the window, her entire family, like six family members being slaughtered. And she said she found Jesus in that bathroom. Who am I to say God didn't get her through that? These are powerful stories. Yeah. And why I am so deferential to and not dismissive of the faithful. Well, I, I just e haven't gotten there. Even, you know... Uh, you can certainly 
clearly belief got her through it and belief itself is is so powerful i mean you know i'm sure people of faith would say that is god that's god's presence exactly that that belief um you know i was i'm from a jewish family i very much identify that way uh got bar mitzvahed um but it was sort of compulsory and so it drove me away and i've never really kind of embraced the um you know the the, pra- the practice of religion mm-hmm. but i've always take taken comfort in um in being part of something and uh exactly. part, of, part of something and having this construct and so in in in, in uh graduate school at nyu my project my dissertation was comparing the devotional practices of the religious faithful with sports fans huh. and there's so many common commonalities you're jewish because you were born jewish um i was a mets fan growing up because uh, of where my, you lived and because my father was that's right uh, a national league fan and hated the yankees yes it was passed on yes. you didn't choose it very few to people stay, by the way yeah not the mets but the hatred for the, the yankees. yankees yeah you don't um very few people come to baseball say or sports say well i'm gonna look at all 30 major league teams uh figure out statistically uh who's best who's most likely to win and that's the team i'm gonna root for it's not how it happens it's almost arbitrary and capricious because of where you live geographically who your father roots for, who your friends right. root for. Religion's very much the same way. And yet, fewer people leave a sports team than leave their religion. And I found the rites, the rituals, uh, the communal psychology of sports fandom and religious devotion so interconnected. People want to be around like-minded people. People want to root for something. People want to be on a team. I mean, this is biological. There was a study um, that a, a doctor at Penn State did where he studied the frontal lobe actions of a person deep in prayer and a person deep in fandom. And the same part of the brain is activated. And I just thought, I mean, in my atheism, trying to find scientific explanations for religion, I just thought this was convincing. You know, this was this was real. <laughs> yeah, I think if you are a Cubs fan, have been praying for a World Series since 1908. It, you have that's to enough be to drive you, or, or or completely disillusioned. To- yeah, right? totally. <laughs> because when are those prayers going to be answered? But look at the faith of 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 <laughs> Cub fan, Cubs fans and Mets fans. You know, look at the faith for no reason. Yeah, well, it's impressive. But the other thing that uh, that uh, religion uh delivers is a ethical construct a values uh system that's important Mm -hmm. and that even if you're not a practitioner you can embrace and appreciate even if you're an atheist totally uh you can appreciate let's you know it's we're we're at a convention where there's a large uh uh representation of evangelicals mm-hmm. uh you know one of the things that um worries me um i i completely honor 
you know, I, as I said, I, I appreciate the role that faith plays in people's lives, both in getting them through and also in this ethical construct. Um, but, you know, my dad came here from, he was an immigrant, and he came here because of persecution, mm. uh, religious persecution, when he was 12 years old. And from Eastern Europe, he was Jewish. His family was routed out by mm. uh, religious persecution. So one of the great things about America was you could practice your religion freely. Right. And um, I worry where we are uh, today. You mentioned this issue of the cab drivers mm. during... Uh, during uh, on 9/11, on 9/11, um, and um, you know th- the the sort of hard-edged rhetoric that we've heard about Muslims from Donald Trump and, and others. Um, if you came from, if you were one of the, if you come from a group that was, you know, from a faith that was routed out of where you yeah. live because you know, I think that's one of the reasons why the Mormons, you know, in their own yeah. way, are so resistant. Um, do you worry about that? Do you worry about intolerance, uh, you know, associating itself with conservatism? Deeply. Deeply. It's one of the main reasons I'm not supporting Trump. Um, look, let, let me say at the outset, a certain level of intolerance is required of a religious person. You are required to say, I disagree with your version of the story. I get that, but it should be civil. And in our society, there's a, there's a, there's an interpretation of the, the freedom of, of religion clause in our constitution on the left that is wrong. And that interpretation is that religion is meant to be a private experience. And so public figures should not be publicly religious. That's a thing that I hear on the left, and that is wrong. The reason your family came here is because they could worship publicly right. without fear of persecution. Right. I, but, I, know, I Well, I, you know, I consider myself on the progressive side, and, yeah. uh, and you probably consider me on the progressive side as well. But, but I never interpreted it that way. What I interpreted it was as written that the, the state should not prescribe yes. what your how you practice your faith or what what form of faith you practice. Right. And so I worry about this notion that, you know, um, that one faith, that we are, you know, a Christian nation as opposed to... Uh, For sure, know. and I, I don't want that either. Um, but in differentiating between the incorrect liberal interpretation that I hear sometimes... And the incorrect conservative interpretation that I'm hearing out of Donald Trump and Newt Gingrich, a friend. Yeah. These are both gentlemen I know personally. Um, so it's disappointing on another level. But Do you think Trump believes it? I mean, or does he? Sometimes I think, of, and, I, and look, I know Donald Trump as well, not yeah. nearly as well as you. Yeah. Um, and I've had, he gave $100,000 to my wife's uh my family's uh, epilepsy very, yeah, he's research a very foundation. Uh, so I don't, you know, I'm, and uh, I know some of his kids and, yeah. uh, but um, he, he's, you know, he's a marketer yeah. and it strikes me that um, he is, 
some careless sometimes in choosing these devices to rally people as marketing exercises without regard to the consequences yes. of what he is doing. Well, that's another reason. His, his, his recklessness. I feel like his policy proposals he's thought about for maybe five minutes. And that sort of temperament is frightening to me as well. But as I've said, I've said this publicly, I feel like he wears the Republican Party like a rented tuxedo. And at the end of this adventure, it's going to be crumpled in the corner with like cigarette butt stains (laughs) and maybe some, you know, ill-advised fluids (laughs) staining them. It's a podcast. Say what you want. <laughs> so, so that offends me too. I don't think he is careful with the conservative movement or the Republican Party, but specifically on the issue of religion, the idea that we would religiously test people coming to this country or people already in this country is deeply offensive to me. And Newt kind of jumped the shark uh, recently on that. Uh, yeah, he did. He know. really went full moron. <laughs> on like full moron on that um his idea was ill-advised on so many levels for one a terrorist who is going to blow up the country and believes in sharia law is going to lie to you when you yes. ask him if he believes in sharia law for another this is are, by the way one you... of the arguments also against some of the enhanced ter- interrogation techniques this is what john mccain Lying. argues which is you know what if you're being tortured you'll tell him anything you need to right. to get right, out, but, and you 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 know even if you know nothing. Right. There's there's the lack of actual practicality right. in some of this stuff. For another, where are you deporting American citizens to? What mythological country is going to is going to ho- ho- house these American citizens who believe in Sharia? Um, and for another, and for me personally, it, it the most offensive part of this is that it is so unconservative to grow the government exponentially to create a police state that is going door to door to ask people what mythological character they pray to at night is the antithesis of conservatism and small government well, conservatism. Well, not to mention, uh, you know, I, I, I'm hesitant to invoke this because it's too freely thrown around, but it's the antithesis of American Americanism, 100%. you know, I I have to tell you, I don't want to get um, mushy about it, but uh, when I went to uh, with the president to um, Russia in 2009, mm. uh, my father was actually from Ukraine, but he was from you know the, the that region, and um, I um, I stood there uh, with my heart on my on my over my heart, my hand over my heart, listening to our national anthem being played uh, by the Russian army band in Red Ooh. Square. And it, it happened to be the eve of my father's, what would have been his 99th birthday. Wow. And, um, and I was like filled with emotion because they fled this religious persecution. Yeah. And I came back as uh, the senior advisor to the president of the United States. That's incredible. And, you know, I mean, I get verklempt. Totally. Thinking about that. And I love this country because it allows people to, to have that experience. And I worry about the rhetoric 
that I hear now, yeah. you know, that leads you to a different kind of place. I mean, I, I, I feel that same way about, or generally about diversity. I mean, the fact that this is a country people want to come to, mm-hmm. want to contribute to, and so on, that is what makes us special. That is what totally. makes us different. Totally. And uh, so I, you know, I have deep concerns about what's going on right the, now. The, the nativism, and look, nativism gets a bad rap sometimes. Nativism is not all bad. Nativism is that thing we were talking about, that communal rooting for a team. And I think people are hungry in this atomized world for a sense of team, a sense of belonging. Yes, and so that, you know, nativism is how you have a healthy, self-sufficient economy. And uh, nativism can can be good, but the nativism that Donald Trump is tapping into is not. And I worry deeply like you do. Um, about some of the policy proposals that he is offering. Um, I mean, are they serious? Does he? I, I he just seems what to I'm think trying... he needs the white supremacist vote. I don't know why. But is that why he's doing it? I mean, do you think that he really believes no, in all this? Stuff? I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't because the Donald Trump I've known has been a Democrat. Donald Trump I know believes in gay marriage. The Donald Trump I know is a, a very a tolerant person. I don't know why he seems to think he needs the white supremacist vote to win this election. And why he doesn't have smart campaign people around him telling him, this is not how you're, go- you're going to win. But he's fixated on this. I, I honestly don't know what their scheme is here because I'm looking at a country... You know, I, I heard Paul Manafort say the other day, we're running the Nixon 68 strategy. The country <laughs> is a lot different than 1968. Yes, it I is. I mean, it's, it's, it's exponentially more diverse. Right. And, you know, the Republican Party did this report famously. We've beaten it to death on the air over a matter of months. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, if we're going to prevail, we have to, be, uh, we have to appeal to... More broadly, we have to attract Hispanic voters and minority voters generally, and we women, have to do better with women people. and young people. Mm-hmm. I worked that, on that report. That project, <laughs> it was personal for me. That project doesn't seem to be going very well. You know, it was. After 2012, we were making some really good inroads uh, among minorities, women, and, and millennials. I saw that evidenced, and I felt really good about where we were going. And when we had this field of 17 candidates, I felt really good about each and every one of them up there. Even candidates that I disagreed with and didn't really think I would vote for. I thought these were good. This is good. We're offering a good thing here. Trump has completely exploded the progress that we had made and really set us back with a lot of his rhetoric. Um, But he has tied into something here that is... I mean, uh, let's set aside the things that we just identified. But, you know, there's a thing that's been coursing through our politics now, not just for a few years, but for decades. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a time when, after World War II, uh, incomes grew with uh, the GDP and all boats rose. Mm -hmm. That stopped, that that started changing in the Mm -hmm. 70s. And yes, you know, technology, globalization, there are all these forces that, uh, that work against uh, that kind of egalitarianism, as it were, yeah. in, the, 
e economy and you know there's a deep deep frustration you've got a whole bunch of people out there some of whom whose jobs have been marginalized more readily by technology than globalization i suspect although you know there's it, it goes may, in some yeah. cases goes hands in hand hand in hand and then the jobs they get pay much less than the jobs they had uh and you know this thing that we revere as an ideal of the so-called american dream mm -hmm. people really don't believe it it exists anymore that if you work hard you can get ahead and yeah. you can do well for your family and so on. i think that's dangerous uh, for the country and we ought to have a serious national discussion mm -hmm. about what to do about that i just don't think we're having uh, i mean he's not offering a serious national discussion about that he is uh, he is he is using it using it right. i think you know pouring salt in the wound as it yeah. were i agree and <clears throat> i think bernie sanders was trying to have a national discussion about it and obviously i don't think that his policy proposals are right uh, uh, the right way to address this and in fact his policy proposals abroad have, are failing but uh, he, I think he was trying to have a smart national conversation. Donald Trump is avoiding that conversation and just sort of using the anger and the fear. But I think you're right. It's, it's not just today. It's decades old. And I think what you see, what you saw in Brexit is very similar in that the elites in Europe believed in this ideal of multiculturalism and ignored very serious and real culture clashes that were happening and thought that that was the domain of the dark corners of, of Europe and not happening on the street level. That was happening on the street level and it's happening in this country on the street level and very smart elite politicians on both sides of the aisle want to pretend it's happening underground. It's right. not. Right. And so that's why people are angry and frustrated because the caretakers of the, this country have ignored that anger and fear and dismissed it as for the, you know, the domain of the unsophisticated rubes. And people want to acknowledge that there are real clashes happening, class clashes and culture clashes. And finally, that's coming above ground. And Donald Trump is calling it out you know, in, in person. Well, it's the interweaving of the economic and the cultural. Yes. This sense, right. this, uh, you know, make America great again, this notion of Scott Baio, the uh, happy days Charles actor. Charles in charge. Yes. My uh, generation, it's Charles in charge. Well, we're dating <laughs> ourselves appropriately here. Um, he, um, uh, he said, let's, uh, let's make, make America, America, America America again. again. I heard yeah. that too, David, and I thought yeah. it was, uh, I was it was eerie. I yeah. I didn't love that. So there's this sense that uh the loss uh your economic loss is tied in with these larger forces that the country's changing in this unhealthy way and because it, of strangers. Right. That's dangerous. Yeah. You know, to to the, the the Trump ideal is that all the problems in your life are because of that guy that you don't you don't like and you don't recognize which we've seen before in history yes this is you're right this is not a unique phenomenon and sometimes those voters 
go left. Sometimes those voters go right. But there's there's always this this group um, that believes their problems are the fault of some stranger. And that stranger's face changes through through time. You know, maybe it's the Japanese during World War II or um, <clears throat> Mexicans now or Mexicans during, uh, you know, Ike's, Ike's era. Mm-hmm. A- and, and that's why it's frightening. Donald Trump looks back at Operation Wetback right. with nostalgia, David. I mean, that project has been universally written off by history as awful. Right. And Donald Trump uses it as this thing we could bring back where you deport 11 million people. I mean, during Operation Wetback, hundreds of Mexicans, if not thousands, were left for dead in a desert to get them as far away from civilized society as possible. That's not something you want invoked. That's not I can't I can't tell my son, who's a year and a half right now in 20 years that I voted for a president who wanted to bring that back? I can't I can't do that. And I, I have Republican friends who say, but don't you fear Hillary? Don't you want to do anything to keep Hillary out? And yes, I don't want Hillary Clinton to run this country. I don't. But at the same time, I can't have that conversation with my son. And that's what guides me. That's what motivates me on a personal level. And so no matter what kind of quote-unquote pivot Donald Trump makes in the coming days and months i can't unlearn and un you know i can't forget what he has said and how divisive he has been up until now i won't and that's why i won't vote for him but i know you're friendly you mentioned this on the air last night with his some of his kids and donald jr who probably launched a brilliant political career of his own last night on uh at, at the convention um have you have you been as blunt with, I, I suspect knowing you, you have uh, with him as you just were with me. Don Jr. and I are friends, and he uh, he knows he knows my reservation. He knows I'm not anti-Trump for a, my career. You know, he knows it's personal. He understands why. He wishes that were not the case, and I know his dad wishes that were not the case. I know his dad is disappointed that I'm not. Team Trump. But do they understand why you're not? They do. They do. They understand this is not just a political calculation. They understand. And do they explain to you, have you ever had a deeper conversation about why they're doing what they're doing? Yeah. Yes. And there's, there's, there's no, no one has told me, don't worry, he doesn't really believe this. That's not, that's Mm -hmm. not what has happened. Um, they have tried to assure me that there is a calculation behind this. And in some sense, that's worse. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, look, we, I, have, I have maintained a friendship despite all of this. And I'm grateful for that. I hope that lasts. I really do. Because I am so impressed with Donald Trump's children. Yeah, no, I had a chance to uh, have uh, a, a sit next to Ivanka Trump at a dinner. I was uh, incredibly impressed by her as a person. They're amazing. As a, uh, you know, her intellect and so on as well. I yeah, I. They're also amazing. I actually parents. think that I actually think that that's uh, 
one of the best assets he's got. I don't, you know. Totally. And, you know, we're in a convention week now. We'll see how much of that transfers to him. But Yeah, uh, that will be interesting to see. But they're, they're amazing. And they're, they're, they're also amazing parents. They all have big families. They all have lots of kids of their own, Eric and Donna and Ivanka. And they're incredible family people. And as a as a young sort of new newish mom myself, I marvel at how hands on they are with their kids and how they manage to do everything that they do yeah. while having. I mean, Donna has five kids. Yeah, it's they're 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 really amazing. They're impressive. You talked about your fear for the Republican Party that uh, Trump is going to crumple up the tuxedo and throw it in the corner. Are you so sure that he's going to go away if he doesn't win this election? Mm. I'm not. I'm not. And, and, and I, I fear less about him going away than his voters. What, what becomes of the voters? Yeah, I mean, my sense, uh, the thing that strikes me more than anything else at this convention is um, I don't know how a, this party coheres right now. You know, you, you, we, we heard, we're, as we sit here today, we heard Paul Ryan speak last night. I thought it was a very good speech. Um, and all I could think was, uh, if there was a bubble box uh, over his head, it was just get me to November 9th. <laughs> right, I right. just, just let me get through this mm -hmm. and then let's start rebuilding the party in a different way. But his vision of the Republican party is very much, I'm sure, attuned to your vision of the Republican yes. party, but not necessarily to many people in that room. And I noticed how quiet it was mm -hmm. when he... He talked about his burner. vision for the party. Right. Uh, he only he only roused people at the end when he said, "We've got to get out there. We've got to." Yeah. Never mentioning Donald Trump, by the way, in that big uh, uh, close to his right. rousing, close to his speech. Right. Um, so, uh, how does the Republican Party reinvent itself in a way that it it could become a, a majority party? It's. Um troubling and this will be the project that people like me have going forward probably you, are you years. pretty confident that trump's not going to win not i'm not confident if i had to if i had to guess if i had to say i i would say today i don't think he can win his numbers among women african-americans and hispanics are so bad i don't there aren't the antithesis enough white of men. your report yes there aren't enough white men to come to his his defense and and vote for him that's what i think i've been wrong <laughs> yeah no he's defied yes, but he's so i don't know but you know the question i'm i if there's nothing that all of us have should have learned thus far in this election year it's humility 100% and uh, you know <laughs> yeah. i i'm kind of embarrassed because i have a very well developed theory it led me to advise obama that he could win in 2008, which is that people choose the remedy to what they have. They never choose the replica. And nobody is the, nobody is the greater antithesis to totally. Barack Obama than Donald Trump. That said, um, you know, every theory has its limits. And, uh, you know, I, I, think, I so think that worked dumb. very much. That worked <laughs> very well in the primaries. Yes. But there, there are certain immutable laws of... You would uh, think. How, like demography. Yes, um, I have felt so dumb through this primary because I know, I feel like I know conservative voters, right? Um, not only have I been through four elections and covered multiple elections at local, state, national levels, and 
I travel the country. I speak to conservatives. I meet with conservatives. I felt like I knew this group of people. I have felt so dumb through this primary. Uh, just that I don't, I don't know these voters anymore. And I, I have to remind myself, it's a plurality. And he essentially won with 10% of the, the population. Right. Not all Republicans. And I still... I still know some conservatives, but I, I agree with you. Like it's been, it's, I felt, I felt out of touch. Well, but it does speak to the larger divide in our society that the, I think that is both cultural and economic, which is people in the media tend to live in the world of the winners. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I think more now because the media budgets are so cramped that you know, it used to be the old political reporters who I trained with when I was a young political reporter would get in a car, a David Broder, and drive around the state for yeah. you. In fact, Dan Baltz told me a great story about Dave Broder. <laughs> it wasn't Baltz, it was Marinus, David Marinus. They were sitting in the Washington Post lunchroom after I forget which election. It was like January, it was like right, or February, right after the new president was sworn in. And Broder just said spontaneously, I feel like going up to Manchester and just driving around and asking people stuff. Yes. You know, but that doesn't happen as no, much it anymore. And reporters uh, tend to, uh, you know, they read bad polls and report off of or that. Twitter. And, <laughs> or Twitter. Or Twitter. And, um, and uh, n- there's very little contact. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think that one of the things that should happen after this election is some introspection about why that was missed yes um i think every editor in the country ought to ask themselves that question every pundit in the country yes ought to ask themselves uh that question Mm -hmm. but uh, so but i want to get back to what you put now let's assume that we we are right for once and and he uh, doesn't and he doesn't Mm -hmm. win and obviously hillary has challenges as a candidate i think we've heard a word or two about them over the course of this convention week in cleveland um maybe maybe too much actually (laughs) but um uh i want you to in your minds in your mind put yourself into november 9th the day after one of the questions i have is is donald trump is the problem with a donald trump candidacy that it won't resolve anything, Mm -hmm. that various factions of the party will, you know, if you had a Ted Cruz uh, and he lost, Mm -hmm. uh, at least you would have had a pure test, right, of here's a conservative candidate, consistently conservative candidate. He ran, he lost. The center-right Republicans would say we we tried that because for years they've been saying, conservatives have been saying, hey, we've been running these mushy moderates. Right. But... With Trump, nobody really knows what his ideology is. So there's an opportunity at the end of this for conservatives to say, well, this is your fault, and for center-right Republicans to say, this is your fault, mm-hmm. and nothing gets resolved. I mean, how does, how does this get worked out? Yeah, there's no really, like, there's no referendum a- at the end of this. Uh, it's, it's, it's really, there's no win for someone like me, right? Either Trump gets elected, despite my misgivings and uh i have to deal with that 
uh, or he doesn't, and the the voters that supported him, where do they go? Mm -hmm. You can't just dismiss them and say, told you so. You can't get elected this way. Put your anger somewhere else. They, they, They stick around. So then it becomes convincing them, okay, the the vessel you chose was wrong, but the stuff inside is right. And so we need to find a new vessel for your anger and fear and resentment and frustration, someone that can actually win. That's a very difficult project. Especially if the vessel sticks around. And And he will. Why wouldn't you? You were the last nominee. You almost got there. It would be very like him to stick around. So, and to say that somehow the result was illegitimate. Rigged. Rigged. Be prepared to hear rigged uh, a lot if he loses. And I, I'll be the reason. You know, people like me will be the reason uh, that we didn't unify. We didn't, you know, come together. If we'd all just come together, we could have gotten this done. It'll be my fault. So there's years of work to do after this, regardless the outcome. Years of work for conservative, for movement conservatives like me, who, unlike George Will, I am not leaving the Republican Party. I'm not going to let Donald Trump or anyone else push me out of the party that I don't believe he represents. He is not an arbiter of conservatism. And I think he'd be the first to tell you that. We had to beg him to sign a pledge to run as a Republican. I think that was a huge mistake. We begged him to marry us. (laughs) When I I want, let's divorce you know, um, I thought that was a huge mistake. <clears throat> what um, talk uh, let, just in the remaining minutes we have talk about conservatism as you see it. What what if you in your if in the perfect world, what would your message be? It would be uh, everything that Paul Ryan said. And I know Paul Ryan well. He is everything I want to be proud of as a conservative, uh, as, a, as a conservative and and. Wish, wish that he were running. Um, it's small government, not no government, efficient government. Um, it's a strong uh, national defense. What are the things that you think government should do? Oh, I mean, infrastructure, basic infrastructure, uh, law enforcement, military, taking care of our veterans. I'm for that, 100%. Again, like Paul says... We're not for no government. We're for efficient government. Um, the government can be good at stuff, but not when it's bloated. Not when it, like Don Jr. said last night, it was just such a great line. He said, it's like a Soviet-era department yeah, store. Apparently, was, that was a line that Frank Buckley had written years ago. <laughs> yeah, it's a great line. And he inserted it in the speech. <laughs> Servicing the clerks more than the consumer. Um, so... I'm for, I'm for that. I'm for a limited government, small government, um, starve the beast economy. I'm for a strong national defense. Um, I don't think these are irrational ideas, and I don't think these are extremist ideas. I'm for tolerance. I'm for getting the government out of my private life. This is why I'm a supporter of gay rights and always have been. I feel like I'm a supporter of gay rights as a conservative. I don't feel like this is an apostasy uh, against my party. I feel like if you're a small C conservative, you don't think the government should be involved in your private life. And you also think that marriage is a great institution and someone willing to enter into it, 
um, should be empowered to do so. It's economically stabilizing. Um, it's it's ab- about self-reliance. When you become a, a married couple, you become more self-reliant. I, I just, I, it doesn't, it boggles my mind why Republicans and conservatives have not come aboard this. So I got to believe that you are, that you're not terribly happy about the Republican Party platform here. No, and what's what's mind-boggling to me is Trump is uh, believes more like I do on on gay rights issues, and yet party chairs still found a way to make this the what, most what, exclusive what, what, and intolerant on that issue in particular platform in, in years. history, and uh, maybe in history. It's insane. Yeah, but. He, the willingness, the, his willingness to uh, sort of give on that, uh, because there really wasn't a fight on it. No. His willingness to give on it. Doesn't that also speak to his uh, notion of the fungibility of issues? That yes. He just uh, doesn't care. I mean, basically, he's trying to get through Does the, not the care. week. And, and that's why, you know, I, I don't look down on the Trump supporter. But <clears throat> I do want to shake the Trump supporter and say... All these things he says he will do, he doesn't actually have the will to do, nor can he do them, thanks to really inconvenient things like the Constitution or Congress or the Supreme Court or the Geneva Convention. I mean, all of these roadblocks to the things that Trump is promising to do. And the fact that I don't believe he actually has a will, a deep desire to do a lot of the things he talks about doing. This is to get elected. And it's so transparent to me. I'm not sure why it's not transparent to everyone else. Well, we shall see on uh, on November 8th. But I must say, my friend, I enjoy the time that we spend together. Can I say it's television. been such a pleasure getting to know you? Yeah. Well, You've we've been got, such a delight. Well, we have, uh, we'll have some interesting months together. Indeed. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.